before we sort of jump into the text, I need to sort of shoot straight with you uh, about who I am, <laughs> uh, about who I am and where I come from on this topic of forgiveness. Uh, let me just state at the outset, I am not naturally a guy who would be characterized as a forgiver. Uh, Scott Wakefield, as a man of forgiveness, uh, has never been a sermon title, <laughs> like David, a man of forgiveness. If you've been uh, with us in the last three or four years, we have a class called the 3C Life Class, and we talk about who we are as a church and what our vision is and, and what sort of the theological underpinnings of that is, what our history is. And, and one of the things we talk about in one of those classes is spiritual gifts. It's the way that God equips us to, to, to build up the body and uh, makes us effective uh, for kingdom work. And one of the things that's kind of a running joke is that my, my chart is in there on the list and pretty much at the very bottom, maybe next to last, is uh, in my spiritual gifts list, shower of mercy. Uh, that's not one of my things. So if God's goal was to bring you a preacher today who could model failure, mission accomplished. However, for the longest time in my own life, I thought, man, I really, I really did, I thought I was a natural forgiver. And now I just sort of believe more in my own depravity than I used to. I think, I think I've always seen myself uh, as a natural forgiver because I learned early on uh, to sort of cultivate the pretense of forgiveness. As a minister's kid who grew up in the fishbowl of church life, uh, I learned to approach my relationships uh, sort of by faking this kind of easygoing, oh, shucks, don't sweat it approach to relationships. Uh, it, I thought at the time this sort of helped me avoid conflict and sort of kept, you know, a social reciprocity going on uh, in, in my relationships with people. I thought sort, of, thought sort of naively that it would keep me, it would protect me from the sins of other people. Turns out when I would say to someone who had wronged me, uh, no sweat, don't you worry about it. I really meant, here, let me just take on the guilt with you with a smile because I needed a partner sort of to help minimize the pain of my own sin and guilt. And that's what we do. That's what we do. Under the pretense of forgiveness is we, we conspire with others. So that's sort of a pretense of forgiveness. And so that we can maintain this uh, false notion that I have forgiven you and you have forgiven me when, it, when what happens may not be redemption. Reconciliation, restoration, because, because that is the heart of God in forgiveness. And that's the picture we're going to see today in 2 Samuel 9. The heart of God for forgiveness is reconciliation that just goes beyond this kind of social reciprocity that means that we can live with one another and not have to end up killing each other. This is something that is a much higher goal than this sort of horizontal social reciprocity that we often use. I know that for me, I learned pretense kind of naturally, like it's just my default response, the pretense of forgiveness. What we're going to see today is not natural. <laughs> it's, it's forgiveness that comes from the heart of God. It's forgiveness that comes from the heart of God, and it only comes through the work of the Spirit to make us alive, to animate us, to make us into the image of God, so that we are people who take the good character and nature of God through the Spirit and extend it to others in forgiveness. My guess is that you probably have a story similar to mine. Your story of becoming a better forgiver is one that was marked by and continues to be marked by 
learning that God's grace always comes at a price, a personal price. Because what we're extending to people is kingdom riches. Kingdom riches that must be extended from an infinite God through the Spirit to others. Now, when it comes to David as a man of forgiveness, uh, it's like many things that we often say about David. He's sort of like the, the Barry Bonds of Bible heroes. He's often spoken of as if he's got a little asterisk next to his name. Barry Bonds holds the record for the most home runs, but there's a little asterisk because he used performance enhancing drugs. David is sort of like that in the Bible. Uh, he was a good man. You, can, you almost can't say he was a good man, but you know he committed adultery and murder. You almost can't say the first part without the second part. And what we're studying today comes right, right at the end of the ascent of King David before in chapter 10 his descent into adultery and murder happened, which is to say that what we're studying today is, is sort of a David before Psalm 51. David uh, before the asterisk. Before 2 Samuel 10, which marks his descent into adultery and murder. The scene of David here as a man of forgiveness, shows that when David was, was crowned king and he was called a man after God's own heart, it was in part because he was a man whose default was radically and intentionally extending the grace of God to those who didn't deserve it. And that's the picture today. Second Samuel 9, if you'll follow with me here, is one of the most poignant examples of this. Uh, you see, David had plenty of reason for revenge. We'll outline that here in just a second. Plenty of reason for revenge. And yet he said this in verse 1. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Think of the significance of just this question posed by David. Saul had been seeking David to kill him, not just once or twice, but, but many, many times over the span of many years. Just with his own hand, Saul had attempted to kill David with the spear three different times. Uh, some have estimated that uh, Saul attempted to kill David or have him killed at least 11 times conservatively. Uh, so before coming, becoming king, which at this point in 2 Samuel 9 he was, before becoming king, David was a fugitive and an outlaw for many years of his life. At one point, David said to his friend Jonathan, who is Saul's son, he said, what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And sort of wrapped up in a statement in 2 Samuel 3 that says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of of David. Plenty of reason to seek revenge. Plenty of reason in his own heart to be a man whose default was not forgiveness, but vengeance. He lived as an outlaw, as a fugitive for many years of his life. And, and not, not only had Saul previously been trying to kill him, but at this point, David was firmly established as the king. And it was customary for a king to kill off all of the members, all the known members of a predecessor's family to help ensure one's own reign. So there's plenty of reason for David to seek revenge, to even the score. But he doesn't. His default was radical forgiveness. Instead of revenge, he upheld a promise that he had previously made to his friend Jonathan. Uh, they tried to sort of create a peace between their households in 1 Samuel 20:14. if you're taking notes. 1 Samuel 20:14. Jonathan pleads, he says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast Love, that's a key word here. It's actually one word in the Hebrew we'll talk about in a second. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And then he says, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face 
of the earth. So instead of revenge, David keeps his promise and he extends kindness. In fact, in our text in Samuel 9 today, three different times, verses 1, 3, and 7, we come across that word for steadfast love, translated kindness. And it's the same word that Jonathan and David used when they made this covenant together, steadfast love. It's a famous Hebrew word, chesed, H-E-S-E-D. You sort of have to at the beginning of it to, to make it an official Hebrew word. Chesed is the merciful and loving motivation that comes from the heart of God to extend a radical forgiveness to undeserving sinners. The heart of God is chesed. So back to verse 1. Let's get moving here a little bit faster. Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Here's the key, and this is the touch of God's grace involved here. He says in this question, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed for Jonathan's sake? David is seeking opportunity to do even more than had been promised with Jonathan. Because forgiveness here is about more than just maintaining a social order and keeping relationships tidy. This is about the radical nature of forgiveness that shows, extends the very heart of God to those who do not deserve it. So when forgiveness comes from the heart of God, its higher purpose is reconciliation and redemption and relationship being made whole. You know that this is the case, by the way, interpersonally, that you've been extended that kind of, of radical grace forgiveness when you receive it and the only response is it, it doesn't even make sense. Like I, I, I can't earn that. That's too good for me to gain because I know me. <laughs> so when you've, when you've received that hesed, you know it because the only, the only reasonable response is a life that mirrors that that extends it to others, that knows that mercy in your bones in a way which is meant to be extended to others around you because that's the heart of God. So let's see how David extends this to the house of Saul and Jonathan. Verse 2, as it turned out, someone was left. It says, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David. Ziba was probably just the steward who managed what was left of Saul's estate. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said... I am your servant. And the king said, verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul? Now notice this, that I may show the kindness of God, the hesed of God to him. Hesed is used 250 different times in the Old Testament. And again, it describes God's freely given grace that results in practical kindness. It's, it's God's grace that results in practical kindness. This isn't, this isn't just God keeping his covenant promise. This isn't just that, it is also that, but this is an above, beyond, exceedingly, abundantly, in the New Testament terminology, that kind of faithful love that basically doesn't even make sense given the circumstances. So when David makes this, this overture to Saul's house, he is intentionally extending God's hesed to someone who is functionally his enemy. This is, a, this is a radical circumstance here where forgiveness doesn't even make sense given the scenario. Normally, honestly, normally people don't act this way. Which is to say that it isn't natural. 
It's supernatural. And it demonstrates the heart of God. So back to our story. Ziba, verse 3, the keeper of Saul's estate, responds to King David and says, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The first thing he says, the first thing he notes about this grandson of Saul is that he's crippled in his feet. Which is a definitive statement to say that it's a major problem for this grandson of Saul. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, we know that he was considered, that Mephibosheth, as we'll learn his name is, Mephibosheth was considered not fit to be king. And he was passed over when his brother Ishbosheth was murdered. He was passed over when it was his turn to become king. So not only is David extending kindness to Saul's household, he is extending kindness to a son considered unfit, the kind of throwaway in the family. He was an orphan in functional terms here. So this is King David extending Hesed to a throwaway son. Verse 4, the king said to him, to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, which to us means nothing. But Lodabar is basically like saying, he's from the middle of nowhere. Like, it's, it's just about like saying, you go down the 107, southeast from the light on the four lane at the end of town, turn left where the old general store used to be, just past the river, drive for five miles, turn right at the dirt road, and when you haven't seen a soul or a house for about another mile or so, you're just about there in the middle of nowhere. Which is to say, Chucky. (laughs) Too easy. Almost to limestone, maybe. For a man with royal blood... He is living in relative obscurity because he's a throwaway. So verse 5, So King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. He had him brought all the way from uh, the middle of Chucky. And, and, and Mephibosheth, there we learn his name, verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, and it says, and paid homage. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, the son of Jonathan, He knows the stakes of the matter. He knows what's involved in this scenario. He knew at that very moment his life was in King David's hands. And David says, Mephibosheth. And he says, behold, I'm your servant. In other words, just just tell me what to do. I, I know that with a word you could kill me, but whatever you tell me, I will do it. And David says, do not fear. Do not fear. Clearly, Mephibosheth had been visibly shaken at the dire prospects of approaching King David. Knowing the states of, stakes of what is involved, it is entirely likely that Mephibosheth himself might have seen this day coming. The day when, when he would probably die for being born in the house of Saul. But in an instant, in, in a moment, David changes the tone from fear to forgiveness. He says, Do not fear, for I will show you chesed. I will show you kindness. Do not fear, for I will show you the heart of God to forgive you. Do not fear, for I will show you chesed, he says, for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will, it says, restore. Restore is not too strong a word when the grace of God is being extended. Don't fear, I will show you chesed for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land 
of Saul, your father. This is land, mind you, at this point that King David rightfully owns. It's his now. And he says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And he says this, and you shall eat at my table always. Listen, only family sits at the table of the king. In in, in a matter of, of a few moments, Mephibosheth goes from orphaned obscurity to vast wealth and honor he couldn't imagine having. Think of the almost incomparable difference from where he had been just seconds ago. Sure that this was his last day on earth. Sure that he would be dead at a moment's notice in fear for his life, knowing that the king could justifiably slay him with the word. And instead, his fear is met with forgiveness and grace and mercy. Is that not the transition from death to life spiritually that we know when we are given the opportunity to know God forever through Jesus. Fear of knowing that my rebellion against the perfect, sinless God of the universe who created me to reflect Him, and yet I take that and I turn it upside down and I say, I am in charge right here. The fear of knowing eternal damnation and being apart from God forever is something that becomes the riches of heaven. That is the chesed of grace given to undeserving sinners. Friends, you don't earn that. You're not good enough. You you, you don't earn that you accept it you accept it and you live as a humble recipient of undeserved grace that's the Christian life Mephibosheth Mephibosheth knew what he'd been given he knew what he had now look at verse 8 it says he paid homage and said what is your servant who am I that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. It's a Hebrew way of saying for nothing. For the nothing that is me standing before you. I have no right to stand. I no, no authority to say I should be given any of this. Mephibosheth knew the score. He knew what he'd been given. So the king called Ziba, verse 9, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, to Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, listen to this, shall always eat at my table. Skip to verse 11. So Ziba said to the king, according to that that my Lord commands his servant, so will your servant do. So listen to this. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Friends, this isn't just a a picture of (laughs) horizontal social reciprocity. This is something so radically different that it can only be something that comes from the heart of God given the circumstances involved. 
Read this, this picture of divine grace here in verse 13. Skip ahead there. And read this ending in verse 13 for yourself. Sort of as a Mephibosheth who experiences the loving kindness, the hesed of God that takes you from orphaned obscurity to untold kingdom riches. Verse 13. So, Mephibosheth lived. Not in Lodabar. But it says this, in Jerusalem. In the city of the king. For he ate always at the king's table. Friends, isn't that what we are all really longing for? Far beyond the limited imaginings of a temporary world, what we long for is to eat at the king's table forever. Because there at the king's table, where we are tangibly among the extravagance of kingdom riches, we will know, not just intellectually, not just here physically, but in every sense of the intimacy of knowing, we will know the full pleasure of a grace and an acceptance that can only come from a king whose treasures extend infinitely beyond our grasp. That's what forgiveness is like. Knowing that what we've been given can't be earned. There will be a day when we know the the full pleasure, the full weight of the glory of experiencing the grace of God whose treasures extend infinitely beyond our grasp. So friends, if, if, if we, this side of eternity, were more aware, were more aware of the riches we've already been given, we would more freely give away the grace we could never earn. Friend, you, you were Mephibosheth. A throwaway who lived out of fear and without hope. But now, because of Christ, you're David. Aware of the limitless grace of a God whose own riches bring restoration. Because we were like Mephibosheth who knew what he'd been given, may we be like David who knows what he has to give away. Extending radical forgiveness and mercy and grace that can only come from the heart of God. Father in heaven, it is our...